Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 1. I would like to read, we're going to start by reading from Psalm 1, and I hope you'll turn in your Bible there. I'm going to show you a slide. Actually, we're going to use a lot of slides. There it is. That's all it says. Isn't that exciting? Psalm 1, and we're going to read this text as we begin our time together in God's Word this morning. So, I'll just mention to those downstairs, because I'm using the slides, make sure the screen is split still, then people will be able to see that. My face will be smaller. It'll be better for us all. So, Psalm 1, and let's read from God's Word. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Last month, the Pew Research Center uh, released a study that has been, done, has been going on for several months about American religious identity. It's the largest study of uh, its time that has been done so far. And one section uh, I asked self-identifying Protestants, many of them evangelical Protestants, but self-identifying Protestants, about their beliefs concerning salvation. They used the term, how do you get to heaven, and the Bible. Here's what they found. 46% of U.S. Protestants agree that faith alone is needed to get into heaven, while 52% say both good deeds and faith are needed to get into heaven. More than half, more than half of people who identify as Protestants say you need to have good works and faith in order to get to heaven. Well, here's what they said about the Bible. 46%, again, of American Protestants say the Bible is the sole source of religious authority for Christians, while 52%, again, over half, say that in addition to the Bible... Christians need guidance from church teachings and traditions. Now, this troubles me. There's been some discussions about these questions and about how, whether they're worded well or not. But if this is all accurate, it means that many Protestants in the United States are closer to the belief of the Roman Catholic Church than to the Reformers who started protesting 500 years ago. Uh, Today, we're going to set aside our normal practice of moving carefully through books of the Bible, and uh, we're going to begin what will be a five-week series on the principles, studying the principles of the Reformation. Uh, Central to the Reformers themselves were these five principles, and they're often called the five solas, that that shape and express their convictions. Uh, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Sola Christus. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Sola deo gloria, to God's glory alone. This month is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. So we're marking this anniversary, and we're going to talk about these five principles. We're going to spend one week on each of these five, 
But we also want you to learn more about the, the, some of the people who were central to this reforming work. So with each of these five principles, we're going to talk about one of these reformers. Uh, next week, Pastor Scott is going to talk about Sola Christus and introduce you to or help you learn more about John Knox. Then uh, in two weeks, Jeff Mindler is going to discuss Sola Fide and Martin Luther. Pastor Scott uh, on October 29th is going to cover uh, Sole Gratia and John Calvin. He's going to do everything about them. Then, that was a joke, that's impossible. Then on November 5th, uh, I'll be back. We're going to talk about Sola Deo Gloria and we're going to talk about Ulrich Zwingli. We're going to talk about who these men are, why they matter to us. In a sense, they demonstrate for us the truth of Hebrews 13, 17. Look what it says. It says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Here are five men who are worthy of emulation. In every discipline that there is or every, every um, interest or hobby that you have, there are people who set the pace, aren't there? Well, my wife was very interested in quilting. I learned the names of some of the best quilters in the United States. Uh, you can think of some of the, your, the premier football players that you know of or people who are really good at carpentry or names that you recognize that are associated with your industry, with your field. When I, we lived in Dallas uh, for uh, four years, uh, people used to say, they would joke, they would wonder, if Tom Landry were, te- were speaking on one side of Dallas and Jesus himself were on the other side of Dallas, most people who lived in Texas would have a conflict about where they were going to go. Oddly enough, Tom Landry wouldn't have any conflict at all. He'd be with Jesus. But uh, that was always the question. Well, every, every sport, every hobby, every occupation has some heroes. Here are the men who in particular matter to us, not just because of who they are, but what they taught, what they said, how they lived. Now, I'm going to start. I have to go first of the five of these. And I, I am under no illusions that this is going to be easy. I'm afraid that these are going to be more like lectures than sermons. They're going to be more information than application. I'm afraid of that. I'm not sure if I'm going to get the balance right between the lives of these men and the principles and the passage of Scripture and the application. I'm not sure I'm going to get the balance between those things right. I'm, I'm not sure that I have the skills to pull this off. But I think it's a good enough idea that it's worth failing at. Worth trying, it's worth failing at. Actually, I have a very lofty goal for today. What I want to do this morning is I want to pour gasoline on the fire of the flames of your delight in the Bible. That's why I read Psalm 1. It says, The blessed person delights in the law of the Lord. He or she meditates on it day and night. The Bible is for us a source of joy and comfort and refreshment and wisdom. It's a delight. I want to nurture your appetite for the Bible. And my chief strategy for doing that is by telling you about a man who gave his life, who suffered dearly his whole life, so that you can have a copy of God's Word in your hand. Now, that person that we're going to talk about, whose biography we're going to follow, is a man by the name of William Tyndale. Uh, William Tyndale is not as well known as Martin Luther or John Calvin. He spent the last 12 years of his life on the run, traveling under assumed names, living in secret places. John Calvin has headquarters in Geneva, and he had followers, and he had, it was still dangerous, but he had a little bit more freedom and time to think, and John Calvin wrote about everything. 
Martin Luther was headquartered in uh, Wittenberg, Germany. He had followers that were gathered around him, and he had time and, and the energy and the effort to write about everything. Martin Luther had a, never had an unexpressed thought. Uh, but Tyndale was always moving. His followers never really were able to gather around him. There was no headquarters. Um, he didn't write as broadly as Luther and Calvin did. But I want to propose to you this morning that actually he was more influential than you think. Now, Tyndale was born about 1494. Those are the dates up there. 1494, that's the most common suggestion in a town whose name I can't pronounce very well, Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire, they're right down there uh, in the... Look, I have a... Look at that. Oh. Uh, England. Uh, the reason that's important is because Gloucestershire is the location where German fabric was imported into England. That will become important later. Uh, we don't know anything about Tyndale's parents. Uh, well, before I go on, just context, 1494, that's when Tyndale was born. So uh, two years after Columbus sailed the ocean blue, okay, Tyndale was born. Uh, Luther was born in 1483, about 11 years uh, before uh, Tyndale. Calvin was born in 1509. He's the youngest of this group. We don't know anything about Tyndale's parents. He had brothers that we know of, Richard, John, and Edward. If you add the name William to that list, those are about the foremost British names that you could ever come up with. Richard, John, Edward, William. Uh, Tyndale went to Oxford. He got his uh, bachelor's degree from Oxford in 1512, a master's degree in 1515. Then he moved to Cambridge. And it was there in Cambridge that for the first time, William Tyndale saw a copy of the New Testament in Greek, the language that the apostles wrote it in. Um, the, the official Bible of the church in 1515 was a Latin version of the Bible that was translated uh, in the 4th century. But in 1516, a Dutch scholar who's going to appear miraculously, Mike, make it, there he is, des, uh, named Desiderius Erasmus, if you're looking for first names for your babies, Desiderius would be a terrible choice. Erasmus was a Dutch scholar. He worked in Cambridge, actually, and he released a Greek uh, edition of the New Testament. He collected all the Greek manuscripts that he could find and to which he had access, and he compiled them into one volume, and his Greek version of the New Testament fell with thunderous weight in Europe. Here is a picture of the Greek New Testament right there. Um, now, on the left side, so on each page, on the left side, this is John, the Gospel of John. On the left side is Erasmus' Greek, uh, Greek edition. On the right side of each page is uh, Erasmus' own Latin translation. So Latin on the right, Greek on the left. And that's what he produced. At the same time that this volume was, uh, was published, some of the writings of a German monk named Martin Luther were making their way to Cambridge. And William Tyndale was a, a, among a bunch of group of young men who met regularly to discuss Luther's writings and Erasmus's Greek New Testament. They met at a place called the White Horse Inn, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. But there's this plaque. If you ever go to Cambridge, you can see a plaque. And it says, this is the site of the White Horse Inn. Uh, known as Little Germany, where Cambridge scholars debated the works of Martin Luther in the early 16th century, a birthplace of the Reformation in England. That's all, all we got is a plaque. 
Well, Tyndale was there. He was one of them. They were talking about what Luther was writing and what Erasmus uh, said in, in the New Testament, his New Testament edition. We don't know very much about Tyndale's conversion from his own life, but it appears that this is the point in time where Tyndale was struck by two great truths. And the first of them was salvation by grace through faith alone. That is, how could somebody be made right with God? Not by works, not by merits, not by ritual, but by faith, but by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. This struck him now. Do you know one of the most important pieces of that puzzle? The Latin version of the New Testament that people were reading at this time, when it comes to the word repent in that Bible, it didn't say repent, it said do penance, be penitent, do things. So that when Jesus comes in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, the text does not say, the Latin text did not say repent, the Latin text said do penance for the kingdom of God is near. Imagine the difference that that would make. So uh, I'm supposed to do stuff. There's things that the church is going to give me to do that are going to get me ready for heaven. The Greek New Testament that, that Tyndale read, that Erasmus put together, did not say do penance. It had the Greek word repent, metanoeo. And, and it means a change of mind, a change of heart. Not a duty, but a, a change of belief. This is striking Tyndale, and they're talking about this. And the other thing that, that struck him at this point in time is that this news is so good that we've got to somehow figure out how to get it into English so that everybody can read this. This is unheard of news. Tyndale said, I believe it, and I want everybody to believe it, and they need to be able to read. If reading the Bible can ch- in Greek can change my life, can you imagine what will happen if people get a hold of the Bible in English? Now, let's leave Tyndale for just a moment, and I want to talk about the state of the Bible in Europe at this time. Remember, at this point in time, before the Protestant Reformation, there was one church, the Roman Catholic Church. Tyndale himself was an ordained priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and the Bible was a book that was controlled and contained by the church. Uh, they, had the, they held the Bible in high regard. They, they did then and do now believe that this is God's Word. Absolutely, this is God's word, and it speaks authoritatively to the church. But it is still official Catholic teaching that alongside the Bible, God's people have need another source of authority, equal in authority to the Bible, and it is found in the traditions of the church. So to supplement the authority of the Bible, we need tradition. Now let me tell you why, what, what lies beneath that thought. See, the Catholic Church upholds the authority of tradition because they believe that the people of God are the ones who create and form the Word of God. That God's people come first, that the people supersede the Word. Here's the argument. We have the Bible, the New Testament, through the work of the apostles, the people. And the work of the apostles has been continued in the church. The church is the organization that determined which books belong in the Bible. And so the church and her traditions have authority that is equal to the Bible. Bishops, cardinals, and the Pope himself uh, are heirs of the apostles. Now, we disagree. We don't think that the people of God create the Word of God. Instead, the Word of God forms the people of God. 
Uh, there are a number of places in the Bible where I could show this to you. Let me just mention two of them. Here is the word of God creating the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel. Genesis 12, God's promise forms the people. So the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. God is speaking. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham was old and his body was dead and God's promise formed the people of God. So the word of God forms the people of God, not the other way around. Now, here's a verse from the New Testament. We could look at several of them, but Ephesians 5.26 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water. How? Through the word. It is the word that creates the people of God. The church is the creation of the word, not the other way around. We have nothing to contribute to the authoritative word. Now, another element that needs to be added here to the the, the Catholic teaching here about tradition is that they believe that in order to understand the Bible and the tradition, God's people need an infallible interpreter of that text. And that's provided by the bishops and the popes. They have the authority to provide an infallible interpretation of the Bible and tradition. What that means is you're not dependent for your eternal sake on the Bible itself. You need to depend on the Bible itself. You just need a good priest who can tell you what the Bible says and what the Bible means. You don't need the Bible. You couldn't understand it properly if you, didn't, if you even had a copy of the Bible. And in fact, in the experience of the church, whenever people get the hands, their hands on a copy of the Bible that they can understand, it's always dangerous. Because they they start questioning the official teaching of the church. Case in point. Well, we'll come back to that here. Can you imagine what this is like here? No copies of the Bible that you could understand. And and translating the Bible into language that you could understand was illegal. It was heresy and it was sedition. Rebellion against the king and liable to get you cast into hell. It's hard to imagine this. I have, I think, probably uh, 20 copies of the Bible in 8 or 10 different English versions. I have 8 or 10 translations in English in my possession. And I have access on my computer to 20 more English translations of the Bible. In in a couple weeks, uh, Pastor Scott mentioned we're we're going to France, and we'll leave uh, Saturday the 21st. Uh, One of the Sundays that we're going to be there, we're going to attend two different uh, churches, I'm preaching in the second service, so I have hopes that I'm going to be able to understand the sermon that day. It will be in my native tongue. Uh, the, the other service that we're going to go to, though, is going to be entirely in French. I've already thought about this. I've already wondered what this is going to be like. Uh, my French has only gotten worse since the last class I took in 1992. So am I going to get bored while I sit there and, and listen to someone speak in French? How, how hard am I going to try to follow along in my Bible to, to what they're saying? Um, I, I it's just going to be tiring and difficult to try, to try to catch and hear and receive anything. Can you imagine if it was like that every week when you went to church? Uh, or every day when you went to Mass, that there'd be somebody up there speaking a language that you didn't understand that maybe he even doesn't know? 
and going through this ritual. Here's an example of the trouble that it caused. You ever heard the phrase hocus pocus? Hocus pocus are magic words, right? When, when you're doing uh, uh, magic, you say hocus pocus. This is powerful words like open sesame, right? Powerful words. Well, hocus pocus actually comes from the Latin mass. At the moment when the priest uh, says a blessing over the bread that turns it into the body of our Lord, he would say in Latin, hoc est corpus meum, which is, this is my body in Latin. It's the, the magical moment. It's not very hard to get from hocus corpus meum to hocus pocus. That's where that phrase came from. You didn't understand what was happening. These are magic words. And the church knew about the dangers of having the Bible in English. They knew what happens to people when they get the Bible in a language they understand. Tyndale was not the first person to translate the Bible into English. That honor actually belongs to a man whose name is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, you don't understand, Wycliffe Bible Translators, that's where this, they got its name. Uh, John Wycliffe was, uh, he lived from 1320 to 1384. He was an English scholar. He was a priest. He translated the Bible into the English from the Latin version, not from the Greek. So Tyndale did it from the Greek. Wycliffe did it from the Latin. And, and unlike uh, William Tyndale, uh, uh, Wycliffe did not have a printing press to print his copy of the Bible. All of his translations were copied by hand. Here is a copy of Wycliffe's, a picture of one of Wycliffe's translations. Now, it is English. Believe it or not, that's English. But remember, it is the 1300s. This is um, uh, Canterbury Tales, Chaucer's English. Even if the letters looked normal, uh, more familiar to us, you would struggle to read this. Um, And so would I. Now, Wycliffe's followers were called Lollards. There's Wycliffe teaching some some of his followers. They're called Lollards. Uh, the, the Dutch word for uh, to mumble or mutter is the word lalain. And the impression is that everybody, all these people, they were going around mumbling the Bible, mumble, 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 mumble the Bible, as they were thinking about it to themselves. So they were called mumblers, or in English, lollards. And uh, they were armed with their English Bibles, and they started to question the authority of the Pope. Uh, they can't find the authority of the Pope in the Bible. And they started to question, uh, uh, how does the bread, does the bread actually become the body of Christ? And these two things are central to Catholic identity. We know how threatened they felt about uh, John Wycliffe, the church did. Whoops, went too far. Because 40 years after he died, they dug up his body and burned his bones. That'll teach him, right? So there's, this is an old wood cutting. Of, they've dug up, there's his casket, you can see. They've, uh, whoops, wrong switch. They've dug up his bones and they're burning them. And then they poured the ashes into the river just to show him. Heretic. Now, there is a direct line from Wycliffe to um, Martin Luther. Because John Wycliffe taught the Lollards. And the Lollard teaching made it all the way to Bohemia, modern day the Czech Republic, to a, a, a preacher named Jan Hus. That word means goose, um, and his, he was burned. Goose was cooked. And then, it's terrible to say that. should not say this. This is an honorable person. He's an upright, godly man. I will apologize to him someday. So, and then, Jan Hus, I'm not the first person to say that either. You know that. Jan Hus actually influenced Martin Luther. One of the things that Martin Luther was accused of was being a Hussite. 
you Hussite. It all came back from John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into English. Um, now, here's some more stories about this. In 1401, so uh, in response to Wycliffe, Wycliffe died, of course, in uh, 1384. In 1401, the English Parliament passed a law, it's called a resolution called On the Burning of Heretics, and it made reading the Bible in English a capital offense. They strengthened the law in 1401. Owning, reading, copying the Bible or any portion thereof in English was illegal. It was heresy. It was sedition. John Fox writes about seven people who were burned at the stake in 1519. Remember, Wycliffe is alive. He's at Cambridge at this time. 1519, they were burned at the stake because they were teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Here they are. Um, uh, John Fox says that uh, there were six men and one woman. There's two women in this picture. I'm not sure. Uh, the woman who the John Fox writes about was a woman by the name of Mistress Smith. And she was brought before judges and accused of teaching her children to read the Lord's, uh, to recite the Lord's Prayer in English. And uh, the judge dismissed her, perhaps out of mercy, I think he, he was, thought he was showing. As they carried her out, there was rustling of papers in the sleeves of, of her, her, her shirt and they, they felt in there and they found a copy of the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer in English, and they took her back and burned her at the stake. This is the environment in which Tyndale began reading the Greek New Testament and discovering the Gospel. This book contains words of light and life and, and peace and hope. They're from God, but it is illegal, punishable by death, to share or speak them. Now, after his time in uh, Cambridge, Tyndale returned to Gloucestershire, uh, where he was a private tutor for a man. This is where Tyndale said his most famous line outside of the Bible. Um, Tyndale was, was tutoring these, these, these children in this home, a man by the name of John Walsh. John Walsh often had guests, and then Tyndale would sit at the table, at the dinner table, and he would argue with these guests about the necessity of translating the Bible into English. And he, and he got argumented more and more with them about it. And one of his, one dinner, he was having this uh, dinner with a, a Catholic uh, clergyman and they were arguing about the necessity of the Bible. And the priest said, we were better, we would be better off without God's laws than we would be without the Pope's laws. And Tyndale looked at him and said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. I want a farm boy to know more of the Bible than you do. Now, this, we should think about this. If God spares my life, I want a farm boy to know the Bible better than you do. Herb Samworth was my predecessor, the pastor of this church. He, was, he pastored from 1974 to 1997. He's a church historian. He knows way more about William Tyndale than I ever will this is one of his favorite stories. Do you know why? Because Herb Samworth was a farm boy. <laughs> he grew up plowing. And then for 23 years, he taught the Bible here. And many of you benefit from the fruit of his ministry. William Tyndale's words fulfilled in our own church. This quote also gives me a, an opportunity to remind you that the Reformation was a movement for and largely driven by farmers and bakers and carpenters and grocers. It was not the clergy, it was not the nobility, it was not the church that is driving this movement. Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on, on October 31st, 1517, 
uh, his words, he wrote them in Latin. And if you ask most Germans in November or December of that year, they would never have heard of it, of Martin Luther and never been able to read his theses. But in, in the next year, 1518, a printer found them, translated them into Germany, and without Luther's permission, published them. That's what started the revolution. It was a printer. It was a farm boy. It was bakers, carpenters, grocers. Mark Dever, we were at a conference last week, and uh, Mark Dever reminded us that of all the denominations in the United States that made in the 20th century the compromises that would lead to catastrophe, denying the Bible, denying the, uh, uh, the deity of Jesus, of all the denominations that slid into those catastrophic compromises, the only one that was brought back from the brink was the Southern Baptist Convention. And the Southern Baptist Convention was not saved by scholars or seminary professors. It was saved by electricians and farmers and plumbers and accountants. Brothers and sisters, my hope for you is that you would know this word well enough that should the need arise, the Lord Christ would use you to save his church. Now, in about 1523... Tyndale left, uh, went to London to see if he could get official permission to translate the Bible. The 1408 law allowed it, and he tried to get permission to go. Uh, It was denied, and it became clear to Tyndale that his life was in danger. He went in 1408 to ask for permission. He had already translated half of the New Testament. He had it with him in his luggage. You know, you go in and you ask the the bishop, can I translate the Bible? Absolutely not! (laughs) What do you, you know, all right, see you later. Okay, and he uh, fled. He went to Germany. The last 12 years of his life, he traveled up, around on the run. He um, never married. He never had any children. He never at this point in time owned any property. He traveled under an assumed name. He went to secret places. Uh, he was hunted down by the agents of King Henry VIII. Yes, that King Henry The Holy Roman Emperor was after him. The Pope was after him. If they caught him, he would have died. Uh, And he spent the time that he had translating the Bible. We think, we don't know, but we think he actually went to Wittenberg where Luther was and may have met him. We don't know because, of course, Tyndale traveled under uh, uh, false names. But there's a registry in a hotel in Germany, in Wittenberg, about this time, where a man signed in by the name of Dalton which is Tyndale flipped. And some people think that that may have been William Tyndale. Well, he finished his first copy of the New Testament in 1525. Let's see what other pictures I have here. Do I have a picture of that? Oh, whoops. Let's go back. This is a statue of William Tyndale. If you're ever in London, you can see it. There he is. He was a little bit more lifelike in life. Okay, sorry. Okay, then 1525... He finishes, and there it is. There's, again, the Gospel of John, and here is his English translation. You probably can recognize, if you, if you work hard at it, right? In the beginning was that word. There it is right there, his English translation. Uh, now, the printing press had been invented by 1525, so it was printed on a printing press, and it was smuggled into England. And you know how they smuggled it in? 700 pages it took to smuggle in the New Testament. They would fold the text, the pages, in, in um, fabric from Germany that was being smuggled into uh, England. And I imagine that some of William Tyndale's friends in Gloucestershire helped with that work. 
So they smuggled in. Again, the church is saved by ship captains and by fabric sellers. Smuggled in, the pages would be found, would be retrieved, and they'd, they'd sew them together, and uh, there we have a Bible. His, his translation is masterful. William Tyndale created English phrases that are deeply embedded in our culture. Here are some of Tyndale's lines. Let there be light. There are more ways to say that. There are more ways to translate that Hebrew phrase, but that's William Tyndale. Let there be light. Am I my brother's keeper? Here, here's his writing. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be merciful unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He created the word scapegoat. He made that word up to put in his translation. He created the word atonement. You break it into its pieces. What does atonement mean? It means to how it tells us how we can be at one with God. The condition of being at one with God. Tyndale made that word up. Uh, he wrote, There were shepherds abiding in the field. Blessed are they the mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The signs of the time. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, Tyndale translated, He went out, Peter, Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's beautiful English. David Daniel says that, uh, he's a Tyndale biographer, he says that wept bitterly is a phrase that almost all of the translations, modern translations maintain. The one exception is a translation that says, Peter went out and cried hard. <laughs> yeah, you, you've grown, right? Because it's terrible. But William Tyndale wrote, he wept bitterly. 84% of what's in the King James translation of the Bible is a copy of William Tyndale. They stole it from William Tyndale, 84% of it. 60% of the Bible that you carry, those words and phrases were first put into English by William Tyndale. If you ask scholars about it, they will say that, that William Shakespeare was the greatest uh, shaper of the English language. I think you can make a pretty strong case that William Tyndale had just as much, if not more, influence than William Shakespeare. Now, the church and the English government, they rose up against uh, Tyndale's translation. Sir Thomas More was an advisor to Henry VIII. He hated William Tyndale. Uh, he wrote a book of 750,000 words assailing Tyndale in his translation. Now, this is kind of funny. <laughs> One of the bishops, in order to eradicate the New Testament, to get it off the market, uh, spent time buying all of them, which is great. It greatly increased Tyndale's profits. And he used that money to learn Hebrew and translate the Old Testament. <laughs> William Tyndale was uh, actually one of only a few people, uh, native English speakers, who, could learn, who learned Hebrew. Tyndale spoke seven languages, and Hebrew was one of them that he learned. I think I have a copy of the New Test his Old Testament here. Let's see. Mike, a little help. There we go. There is the whole thing. Uh, 1534, so nine years after Tyndale wrote his, uh, did the first New Testament, uh, Henry VIII broke with Rome. Do you remember why Henry VIII broke with Rome? Because he wanted to get remarried, uh, divorced and remarried. Um, Tyndale's hope, when, when King Henry VIII broke with Rome, he hoped that his translation work would then become legal. So he came out of hiding. He went to Belgium uh, to a city called Antwerp. He was betrayed and arrested. He spent 500 days in jail. And on October 6, 1536, 481 uh, years ago on Friday, so Friday, 481 years ago, 
Uh, he was 42 years old. Tyndale was uh, tied to a stake. They strangled him first, and then they burned his body. His last words supposedly were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Let Henry get a Bible in English into England. All of this for the Bible. All of this for the Bible. His life embodies uh, the principle that we call sola scriptura. It's embedded in the origins of the scriptures. Why do we believe in the authority of the Bible? We believe in the authority of the Bible because we believe in the divine origin of the Bible. We believe that all scripture is God-breathed. Because it's from God, it has supreme authority. Our doctrinal statement says, it is the supreme standard in all matters to which it speaks. Because this is God's word, to disbelieve it or to disobey it is to disbelieve or disobey God. We know enough to be suspicious of anyone who says they have words from God that should be heeded that are not in this book. We know to be suspicious of anyone who wants to add to this book or put something alongside this book that claims our allegiance. Let me show you one key text in this here. This is from 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Verse 16, so this is... Whoops, went too far, Mike. Thanks. In verse 16... Um, uh, the text says, uh, Peter starts writing about his, his experience of seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he said, I saw his glory with my own eyes. I'm not making this up. And then he says, verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. You, you might have a better translation than that. I'll keep going. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God. Where does the Bible come from? From God. As, though, uh, uh, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, your translation of verse 19, uh, the New American Standard says, we have the prophetic word more sure. More sure. That is, as reliable as Peter is as an eyewitness, he, he saw Christ's glory with his own eyes. As reliable as he is, the word is even more reliable than his eyewitness account. It's even more trustworthy. It's more trustworthy than your own eyes. The Bible is more trustworthy than your feelings. That's what's supposed to guide everybody today, right? How do you feel about this? The Bible is more trustworthy than your own feelings. It's more trustworthy than your own thoughts. It's more trustworthy than your own church. It's more trustworthy than your own pastor. It's more trustworthy than your own elders. It's more trustworthy than your parents. The Bible is the trustworthy source of authority and information because it's God's word. We need this. We need this sure word. Andrew Moody says, what happens when some prophet comes boldly across our television screens and he appears to be doing miracles is he legitimate is he from god or not is she from god or not we have the word to tell us the answer what happens if there's some movement that's sweeping churches and all these churches are changing and thousands of people are coming is this something that we should pursue is it from god or not is this a spirit at work we have the word what happens if you're particularly attracted to a member of the opposite sex, is it God's will that you should be together? We have God's word. 
Now, I want to finish this morning by giving you two reasons why sola scriptura is so central to who we are and what we believe. First, it's because the Bible definitively, authoritatively, comprehensively tells us how we can be right with God. The Bible tells us how we can be right with God. This is really Tyndale's passion. This is why he wanted to work to translate the Bible so that people could read about Jesus themselves. His death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven. Tyndale wanted you to know that if anyone who calls on Christ, who, who turns to him in faith, will find forgiveness. In one of his books uh, that Tyndale wrote, he didn't write very much beyond the Bible, but a little bit, he strings together all of these titles of Christ. Jesus is our Redeemer, our our Deliverer, our Reconciler, our Mediator, our Intercessor, our Advocate, our Attorney, our Solicitor, our Hope, Comfort, Shield, Protection, Defender, Strength, Help, Satisfaction, and Salvation. Here's one of the things that he wrote. Just went by. His blood, his death, all that he ever did is ours. And Christ himself with all that he is or can do is ours. The Bible tells us how to be right with God through faith in Christ why its authority is important. But Sola Scriptura also tells us what God requires of us. It tells us what God requires of of us. What are we to do once we have believed in the Lord Jesus? How are we to live? There's no higher authority than, than this. All authority that is, is exercised under the authority of the Bible. We only have authority to bind the conscience of people to this book. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We don't have the authority to reduce what it says about difficult topics like marriage, divorce, and human sexuality. I don't have the authority to say that this book is out of date or out of touch or needs to be updated with modern sociology. We don't have the authority to tell you that the Bible requires you to light your house with propane and that you can't own a motor vehicle. No one speaking on behalf of the Bible, on behalf of God, has the right to command you to dance or to forbid you from dancing. Now we're getting a little closer to home, aren't we? We command what the Bible says. This is what God expects of us. No more and no less. Brothers and sisters, I commend you today to delight in this book. Its presence in your hand is the result of great sacrifice. Even more, I commend it to you this morning because it is God's book for us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your servant, William Tyndale. I I doubt that he imagined that there would be a group of a couple hundred people in a continent that he didn't really know existed, that would be talking about him 500 years after he lived and died, probably would astound him. And yet here we are, and we're grateful to you for the work that he did on behalf of your son and for the good of your people. Lord, we want to consider the outcome of the faith of these fine men, and we want to imitate it. We want to follow them. I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in us a delight in your word and that you would do in our congregation what you did through the Reformation, 
using bakers and printers and farmers and ship captains and grocers and fabric store owners to save and preserve your church. Make us men and women who, who know our Bible well enough that we sniff out changes and compromises and weak claims of authority. Lord, we want to be a people who love your word because it is from you and we love you supremely. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.